Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is a podcast from Minute Media. To see that the Golden State Warriors are back to being the Golden State Warriors that transformed NBA basketball into a more beautiful game, one only needs to close their eyes. That dynastic unit, which went to five consecutive NBA finals and won three of them, looked like the next step of evolution, sure, but the real magic was how it sounded. No team in the history of basketball boasted more eruptions per minute. A Steph Curry three from the parking lot. Two consecutive daggers from Clay Thompson, whose heart rate never seems to elevate over 65 beats per minute. A brilliant extra pass from Draymond Green to find a spark plug off the bench, capping an 11-0 run and sending the other side to the safe harbor of a full timeout. The roar of a frenzied Bay Area crowd, incredulous amazement by the play-by-play announcer. This was the soundtrack of so many prime times and late nights. Those joyous peaks went away for a while, but are now once again on full display in the form of a blistering auditory experience. Fathers of three, including some incapable of sleeping through the night, struggled to see the end of the 10.30 p.m. and even the 9.30 p.m. tips. Nature necessitates falling into the trap of nodding off on the couch, confident the Warriors will only build on their 11-point second-half advantages. It happened again the other night, for this blogger and it was oddly comforting to hear golden state feel like golden state even with tightly closed eyelids a familiar refrain explodes on most possessions the momentum grows to the point of fatality for the other side sure these denver nuggets find themselves in a uniquely bad matchup with a squad that stretches the floor like none other but through two games the roars of the splash brothers are as loud as ever Curry, coming off the bench like some sort of alien version of Vinnie Johnson, is reminding everyone why he's the greatest shooter of all time. Thompson is healthy and unencumbered, finally, needing only the slightest opening to deliver his arrows. And Jordan Poole has entered the chat, continuing his breakout season with flurries of buckets, facilitated by a system addicted to creating open three-pointers. He followed up his 30-point explosion in Game 1, with another 29 on Monday. 19 of his 29 attempts have found gold, including 10 of 17 from beyond the arc. Small sample size has burned us many times before, yet there's reasonable belief the backcourt now has a third scoring option as icing on the cake. Beautiful music is being made. The volume is being turned up. It's a variation on a previous theme, and perhaps just as crowd-pleasing in the end. The Chicago Cubs won the Seiya Suzuki sweepstakes this offseason, and the immediate returns have been even more impactful than most starry-eyed optimists 
would have imagined. After putting up boffo offensive seasons in Japan for the past few years, he's acclimated to Major League Baseball immediately, finding ways to impact the game in every dimension and providing a shot in the arm for a team desperate to rebuild toward relevance. Through 10 games, Suzuki was hitting 400 and had an OPS of 938. The power has been on display with four bombs and 10 RBI. So has the ability to reach base in myriad ways, take the extra 90 feet, and provide a dynamic weapon in the heart of the order. He's making history for the Cubs with a nine-game hitting streak, the longest to start a career with the franchise since 1943. He's reached base in every game he's played and reached twice in eight of his nine starts. These efforts earned him National League Player of the Week honors for what could be the first of many times. It has to feel like Christmas on the north side, and not just because this early homestand has taken place among flurries. To see Suzuki display his expansive skill set and give a window into all the things he can do as a player to win is a tremendous gift. Monday against the Rays, he induced an error on an infield chopper, was narrowly nabbed trying to stretch a single into a double, and scampered home with the go-ahead run. With certain guys, you get the sense that they are always a catalyst for action, and with Suzuki, it seems obvious. There might be a regression to the mean coming, yet it's clear that any time he steps on the field, he has a great chance to alter the outcome in some form or fashion. The honeymoon phase is supposed to be fun, and that's exactly what's happening right now as a fan base falls deeper in love every day. The official First Things First account tweeted a very nice picture of co-stars Kevin Wilds and Nick Wright hanging out looking casual and having fun with all of their other friends just off screen. It should serve as an important reminder that embracing debate does not prevent embracing each other. Even this seemingly innocuous post, though, garnered some controversy with Wright making some serious allegations about camera angles and distortions robbing him of his hard-earned inches. He said, I understand this is incredibly vain and whack to even care about, but I can't help it. For years, First Things First viewers have said they always assumed I'm very short. The truth is, I'm six foot one. Then, this wildly distorted picture comes out, and I look like I'm 5'4". Unfair. Just for the record, we here at the Big League do not care how tall right stands. That is not the true measure of a man. All that matters is the quality of their takes. But the incident, if you can call it that, did lead us down a bit of a wormhole on the good old World Wide Web that is both weird and, it seems, completely useless. How tall is Nick Wright? If you wanted to know the answer to this question, you could simply consult dozens of bizarre celebrity biography pages online. They would tell you that he is either 5'7", or 5'11", or anywhere in between. Here's a brief sampling. Celebrities from has him at 5'11". A Real News. Five foot seven. One World Information, five foot eleven. ABTC, whatever that is, five foot eleven. Wally Kali, five foot ten. Married Biography, five foot eleven. The Person Age, five foot ten. You get the picture. And height is just one of the extremely specious tidbits you can find on these pages. There's weight, relationship status, net worth, and salary info. Those also vary wildly between outlets. It is quite clear that what is happening here is a copy making a copy of a copy 
with no first-to-market reporting out there. Simply put, it should be obvious that you cannot trust a single thing you see about anyone on these types of sites. The best way to truly find out Wright's height is to have his work post a picture of him that sends him to the keyboard to claim a never-before-seen six-foot-one mark. That's one famous person down, several thousand to go. Mapping the height of famous people is a never-ending job, like mapping the ocean floor and mapping space. All are of equal importance. The opening weekend of the 2022 NBA playoffs was quite entertaining for basketball fans. And now we have numbers to suggest everyone felt that way. Austin Karp of the Sports Business Journal presented ratings from the first games of the first round on Tuesday, and the league has to be ecstatic about the returns. Karp says, The NBA averaged 4.03 million viewers across ABC, TNT, and ESPN for the first eight games of the playoffs, marking the best opening weekend for the league since 2011. ABC's Net Celtics, which clocked in at just under 7 million viewers, was the best first-round game since Warriors-Rockets Game 4 in the 2016 playoffs on ABC. The official NBA PR tweet has the average at slightly over 4.03 million, clocking in at 4.05 million. Every little bit counts. The best viewership for opening weekend in a decade is pretty good, right? What makes these numbers especially impressive is the relative lack of big ratings drivers in the playoffs this year. LeBron James, king of all things ratings, and the Los Angeles Lakers are on vacation already. New York's most popular team, the Knicks, are watching from their couches too. Of the four teams in the two biggest ratings markets in the country, three aren't in the playoffs. Of course, the relative aspect is important. It's not like the postseason this year is filled with a bunch of no-names the average fan doesn't know or care about. The Steph Curry Warriors are back in full force and playing like it's 2015 again, even if they're in a somewhat non-competitive matchup. The Celtics and Nets bring immense star power to the table, with the added bonus of being the most competitive first-round series, and Game 1 coming down to the final possession certainly helped matters. The Bucks and Suns are both primed for a repeat run after their introduction to the casual viewing population in last year's finals. Philadelphia, Miami, and Chicago's passionate fan bases are all involved. These numbers are pretty huge for the NBA, after the last few years have featured a dramatic slide in the ratings department, mostly due to COVID. Momentum will be difficult to keep up over the next week because most of the first round series will be effectively over by game three or four at the latest. The Boston-Brooklyn series will have to do some heavy lifting when that happens, although the drama of game one suggests that won't be an issue. But simply consider that the NBA posted their best marks in a decade without the man who dominated that entire span in LeBron James, or his biggest individual rival in Kawhi Leonard, or without the rabid Los Angeles fan bases. It's a small step, and how the ratings shake out when there are fewer teams and fewer big names will be a better indicator of progress being made. But there's a reason for optimism, and that's been in short supply when it comes to NBA ratings in recent history. It's all the league can hope for. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show presented by the Big Lead. It's walk-in Wednesday, and stepping into my office is TBL writer, longtime friend, upstate New York enthusiast, Steven. Steven? <laughs> Flawless. 
Stephen Douglas. Stephen, the NBA playoffs are back. How are you enjoying the action? I know that you are the biggest NBA fan we have on site. It seems like we have some pretty good storylines developing. What stood out to you? Yeah, I, I, I love NBA basketball. Uh, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the top level of the sport. And the playoffs are, they, they give you that little extra where the players are uh, visibly trying most of the time, which uh, a lot of people feel you don't get during the regular season. But the playoffs so far have been good. Uh, we've got uh, the ones, some of the top seeds have lost games, made are in series that are much closer than some people thought they might be in. Uh, and last night the Suns lost and Devin Booker might be hurt. So it's, it's kind of a wide open race and we've got a, we got a deep league right now. And I, I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah. We're seeing that from all over. I think the ascendance of Anthony Edwards in Minnesota kind of having his coming out party is an example of the depth of talent across the league. And even last night we had Brandon Ingram, who is kind of like the forgotten man playing like just a top five player in the NBA, even though he was hurt, his ability to get his shot at any time. Like if he catches fire, I think that there's a chance that the Pelicans can at least go back to Phoenix tied two to two in this series, which is going to put a ton of pressure on the Suns. And they're doing this without Zion. And I wonder if that's going to afford everybody else on the roster, the ability to kind of elevate their own performance, almost a Ewing theory situation with the Pels. How much chance do you give them in completing this upset? It's still quite a long shot. Even, even if Booker really is hurt, um, because the Suns are such a, a deep team, uh, but yeah, Ingram, he's, yeah, he's kind of, he is kind of forgotten. Uh, he has a slow start in LA and just over the last couple of years, he's really come into his own with uh, New Orleans as, as a player, but you know, he's, he's in the shadow of Zion Williamson. He kind of looked like he would be pushed out, but you know, Zion just can't stay healthy or stay healthy enough for the team to allow him to participate in basketball activities. We, yeah, when, when Ingram is cooking, you know, it's a good reminder that, you know, being tall really does help in basketball where it just seems like that shot is unguardable the, the way that Kevin Durant is. I mean, it's obviously a different level, but just he's like seven feet tall. His arms look about eight feet long. And when he just it just seems like a, a big kid and playing uh, youth sports or he can just hold the ball above his head and nobody else can get to it. Over in the Eastern Conference, we have the Miami Heat who have won the first two games against the Atlanta Hawks. Jimmy Butler went off for 45 last night. It kind of harkened back to that bubble season where he was as good as anybody in the NBA when it, when it mattered. And I know that you and I have had some fun with heat culture. We love to joke about them. Part of that is the Levitard crew, Ryan Cortez, shout out. Great fan. We love him, but I love to watch kind of like the devolution uh, of man when it comes to fandom, setting aside all rationality for pure Homerism. 
and I wondered last night when I saw the way that the Heat and the, their fan base was celebrating winning a game they were supposed to win. It did feel a little bit like the Knicks last year who were understandably and rightfully roasted for taking to the streets after they won a single playoff game. I'm kind of concerned that they're so focused on the disrespect or perceived disrespect, which they've been given. And I think that that's fair. I don't think people really see them as a traditional one seed, but I do wonder if their eye is still on the prize or if this is the way that they kind of have to play. If they are the NBA's version of Michigan state, where it's like, any type of disrespect, any chip on the shoulder, manufactured or otherwise, it's kind of like the only way they know how to play. I'm having a hard time imagining the Miami Heat being a worthy one seed, being the odds-on favorite, but performing to the level that meets those expectations. It's almost like they thrive on this adversity that they welcome, embrace, and I kind of think ask for in the way that they behave. Uh, my internet cut out there, but I think I just missed more of you disrespecting the heat. So I'm glad it did. Um, the, the Miami Heat are the only team in the NBA, the only franchise that wants to win. And people forget that. Um, they they want to win this every game. They want to win every championship. And no other franchise even thinks about it. So they have a big advantage right there. Uh, they're, they're handling this. I mean, what must be the scrappiest, toughest eight seed in the history of basketball right now. Uh, Trey young is, I mean, remember what he did to the Knicks last year? I mean, that's just crazy that, that the heat have to deal with such a, such a tough task in the first round, but uh, they will persevere. Uh, you know, they're going to handle everybody else, but they're only going to take it one game at a time while focusing on winning. And that's what people forget. Elsewhere in the East, we have a dynamite matchup between the Boston Celtics and the Brooklyn Nets. Game one was as good of an opening round matchup and as high of drama as you're ever going to get. Kyrie played amazing. I know that both you and I have our issues with Kyrie. We can debate whether he should be flipping fans off in the crowd. I actually kind of like it because I think that so many people go to these games and think that they're entitled to say whatever they want to these guys. And it's just sort of inhuman. It is a little bit weird that he did it multiple times. Like he wasn't going to be caught when there are cameras everywhere, even if ESPN and Disney doesn't want to show that on the airwaves. When it comes to the heckling, when it comes to getting in Irving's head, I don't think that anybody has the ability to do that. Even the Boston fans, which are notoriously tough, notoriously cruel, notoriously clever. They come up with uh, these chants. I don't know if you've seen them. They have high profile fans who put them out and they're always dynamite. But I think that it adds to the experience when a guy like that who wants to be the ultimate villain, someone who you and I have kind of embraced as that villain makes good on the court and plays like one of the best players in the world. Ultimately seeing him fail in the end kind of brought a bit of a smile to my face. It is awesome to see him play like the Kyrie Irving of old. And it'd be a reminder that he can single-handedly take over a game, take over a series. Where are you on the Kyrie Irving stuff right now? Well, I've, I've had a real issue with separating art from artists uh, recently with Kyrie. 
Um, he's incredibly talented. He's fun to watch, but you know, the off court stuff just has driven me nuts over the last, uh, I guess two years. Um, and my brother actually spoke to me, uh, this morning about taking the Celtic side, uh, because it's just, it should never be Boston. You should never root for Boston in anything. And I agree with that. And that's, that's how much Kyrie has kind of gotten under my skin. Um, but yeah, the, the fans in Boston, um, fans everywhere have just been kind of crazy. Uh, it's, it's something that players have to deal with that a lot of times they really shouldn't. And when they don't deal with it, uh, just like turn the other cheek and react, uh, they probably get an unfair shake from media and, and then fans again, because, you know, they're just supposed to, but yeah, the, the fans definitely go over the line. Um, it, but it is just, Kyrie's just such a, such a weird dude. And just seeing the way he reacts to it and like running around, giving people the finger, it's, it's an, it's an odd reaction. It's understandable, but odd just those he's like, he gives them the finger and then he makes all the funny faces and then tells the press that, you know, I, I do it in other games. There are just more people watching right now. It's just more of more, another layer of Kyrie's weird onion personality. Oh, so you're mad at me for the crime I did commit, but what about all the other ones I committed that you didn't notice? Very yeah. curious. Yeah, it's a smart retort. I wrote the other day about Tyrese Maxey for the Philadelphia 76ers, who look really good through two games. I think that the Raptors are a flawed team, and this series right now says a lot more about them than it does the Sixers. But Maxey has been spectacular. He scored 61 points combined in the first two games. He's shooting 67%. And it really made me juxtapose what he's doing in terms of production on the floor versus the production of Ben Simmons, who was shipped to the Nets midseason after not playing at all. He still hasn't played. His main contribution seems to have been sitting on the bench looking like Gumby, uh, telling NBA reporters, check out this sick dunk that <laughs> nobody's guarding me. I'm getting a little sick of the one-on-o drills and the idea that they might say anything about the player he's going to be when he returns, but Simmons is 25 years old. Okay. And I've long been doubtful that he's going to return and be an all-star caliber player. I just don't think that there's a precedent for it. I think that he's slightly broken mentally. He can get back to a place where he's healthier mentally. I think that we all want to see that, but he's never going to be an outside shooter. Meanwhile, you have Maxi who's 21 years old in his second year, is the fastest player on the court. You put anybody in front of him, he's going to get by. He And he's shown the toughness to be able to do it when it matters. He's not afraid of anything. I wonder if you're a Sixers fan right now and you're just wondering at home how the hell Daryl Morey pulled this off, how they got in such an advantageous position because essentially if Maxie's going to play like this, they have a big three with Embiid, Harden, who's struggled, but it hasn't mattered. And I think that he's, eventually going to find his level in what world would you prefer having Simmons over Maxi for the long term going forward? Yes. Yeah, it was a big subtract or addition by subtraction thing. Um, it's kind of like the Sixers ended up trading uh, Seth Curry uh, and Andre Drummond for, for James Harden, which is a pretty good trade. 
Uh, I who know it's that we I just don't think we know anything about Ben Simmons in any serious manner. I I'm not sure who does. Um, like we we don't know what happened to his back. He he didn't play for nine months and then all of a sudden he has a back injury. Um, where I mean, was that why he missed? That's not why he missed any time this year. Um, and then suddenly he's got a back injury, and we don't know. We're always seeing, you know, he's doing the the drills, but he's he's not really any closer to playing. Um, you definitely the Sixers are they did a good job. They drafted Maxi, who's turned out to be a a really good player. So that's that's very good for for them. And then if Harden can get his uh, stuff together, then they can really make a run. So, yeah, I if you're a Sixers fan, you have to be very excited about the exciting young player who is uh, playing very well right now. Well, the main story I wanted to have you on to discuss because we have been recapping winning time uh, when I'm healthy. I'm sort of the Ben Simmons of the big lead right now, not being healthy enough to get on the court, sadly. Working on that, I definitely have a better attitude and I'm plowing through it. I don't have the mental block of podcasting, although I probably should if you think that it's not very good. But the big news last night is that former Lakers executive Jerry West is demanding a retraction and an apology for what he's calling a baseless, malicious assault on his character from the HBO series Winning Time. The letter was obtained by ESPN. It, it alleges a false and cruel portrayal of West as an out-of-control, intoxicated rageaholic and says that it bears no resemblance to the real man. So their recourse is they just want a retraction no later than two weeks from the receipt of this letter. The season will still be going on. And you and I have talked previously when we've been recapping these shows at the bizarre way that West has been treated. It's important to note that in the Jeff Perlman book that the series is based on, that it was adapted from, none of the salacious stuff appears in there. Yes, West is painted kind of as a curmudgeon, as someone who's never happy, but the things we see him doing on this show, the sweaty sex, the throwing things, the golf clubs going all over the place, a guy who constantly gets in his own way, it has seemed so over the top to the point where one wonders if there's a personal vendetta at play there. Let's start here. Number one, do you think anything is going to come of this? And number two, what do you think is behind the portrayal? Because it's billed as a drama series and not a documentary. I think that there's a fair understanding out there that you can't just put a wildly inaccurate depiction of someone that always assumes the worst of them out there in the public and have it just be fine at the very least you're going to get blowback from the parties involved and it's important to note that many people who aren't in the series but had concurrent time with west really hate this portrayal as well and say that it's nowhere close to reality so your thoughts on jerry westgate uh jerry west i i mean we we covered it back back when we used to uh do recap podcasts back before you became uh ben simmons um it seems like jerry west personally offended adam mckay and he just took it out on the script um 
West is completely unhinged in the show. Um, and the last, we were, we were kind of worried about where the series is going the last time we uh, talked. And the show has, I think, gone back on the rails and gotten pretty good over the last few episodes as they, uh, as the team came together. But Jerry West has kind of like gone to the background and yet he's still every week somebody is popping up to say Jerry West is not that much of an asshole. He's just sad um, or some version of that. And then it all came to a head with the with what is kind of unprecedented um, for someone to take a, to say, I want a retraction and an apology for my portrayal in this show. Like, it seems like something that Mark Zuckerberg would have done for like the social network or something. And Jerry West is finally like the one to say, well, no, I've had enough. Um, I don't know. I think, I think McKay will kind of have to say something. It seems, I mean, West has a, a lawyer involved in drafting a statement. Um, he, and I don't see what the big deal, because Perlman, I think was uh, defending him, defending the portrayal and the show. Uh, I think from, uh, Bill Plaschke or somebody, somebody who was taken, who had issue with the the various portrayals of the characters. It was Bob Ryan. And Bob Ryan. Okay. Yep. I knew it was one of those around the horn guys. Um. Yeah. I McKay. I, what's the harm in saying? Yeah, I'm sorry. We, you know, we went a little too hard on you, uh, but you know, we were just trying to make the best TV show possible. Uh, if if McKay doesn't do that, then I think he really does have a problem with uh, Jerry West, which would be super funny and super weird. But yeah, Jerry West definitely has taken the uh, taken it the worst in winning time. Writing on his Substack yesterday, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said, "Instead of exploring West issues with compassion as a way to better understand the man, they turn him into a wily E. Coyote cartoon to be laughed at. He never broke golf clubs." He didn't throw his trophy through the window. Sure, those actions make dramatic moments, but they reek of facile exploitation of the man rather than exploration of his character. That seems pretty fair to me. And I wonder if I was in the situation where I was seeing myself presented on screen like that in a way that it seems like it's universally agreed is just totally incorrect. I don't blame West at all for bringing this up. There's the thought that there's going to be a Streisand effect where everybody is now going to watch this series to see this portrayal when I don't know what ratings have been, but I don't think it's been the overwhelming success that maybe McKay had hoped for in terms of that department. I wonder if there's this injection of new energy when people want to see just how bad West comes off that makes it worse for him. But I have to think that I would have done the same thing. I think day to day we write about people we have fun here at the big lead, but I think it's important for us all to recognize that there are human beings behind the names that we are discussing, that you owe them a certain level of fairness. And to me, my perception of it, and it seems like I have just as good of a one as McKay because he's using things that aren't in the public record to craft this vision of him it doesn't seem like they're being fair at all. And when someone comes out and says this, I don't really see the harm in at least addressing it, which he's going to have to do 
legally in some form or fashion, but maybe softening a bit because if it is really bothering someone and it's not absolutely crucial to the show, I know that artists don't like to mess with their art, but when that art is so experimental, so much like jazz and you play a bad note, I think that you kind of owe it to everybody involved to rein it back in so that we can all enjoy the groove. Yeah, when, when a show is based on real people, uh, you kind of owe them, you, you have to owe them something to like kind of get it right. Uh, like I mentioned the social network, uh, it's, it kind of has to be like in the same vein, you know, just when you're making up these stories, uh, it just can't. I don't know. You, you have to kind of portray them as the people they are, even if you're making up something that happened to them. I, th- I think the, the show has gotten a lot better since the team came together, uh, since it, basketball kind of became the, the focus again, uh, even as Jerry Buss kind of became like just Jerry Buss and Jerry West came, became kind of the part of the ensemble. I think the, the basketball has been really well shot the way that they've put it together and used uh, like short clips, it, it kind of looks believable. Um, I've, and I just have really enjoyed the the players and uh, Jason uh, Siegel, I think has been a, a great addition. Him and uh, Adrian Brody have been uh, good together. Uh, the Pat Riley stuff is still hilarious. Uh, it seems, it seems like his, uh, He's having a Joker moment every uh, episode where it's like, I'm going to become Pat Riley and slick back my hair like that. That scene in the shower, there's no way that happened in real life. There's no way that uh, Pat Riley put Paul Westhead into a shower and turned on the water and then slick back his hair. He's like, oh, my goodness, what am I becoming? I will play devil's advocate here through this lens. Magic Johnson is working on his own project, telling his story. We kind of yeah. expect it to stink because all of these projects, all of these series with editorial control given to the player is going to tell the story they want told. And we saw the best case scenario of this, which was The Last Dance, which was a spectacular documentary, a spectacular look at what makes Michael Jordan click, what makes him tick all the behind the scenes footage was really good. And it came out right while the pandemic was at its peak. So it resonated in a way that it wouldn't have in normal times, but Tom Brady's series about Tom Brady is not particularly insightful. And anytime an athlete has access to the edit bay, they are filtering out all the good stuff you might want to know about them. If it doesn't click with what they want, told about them so maybe a pleasant medium is something that we need to find between these hagiographies and winning time it seems like it'd be a slightly easier balance to strike where you are letting some of the warts be seen you are showing the dirt around the edges but you're not muddying the whole thing up in the interest of trying to make it as salacious as possible do you would you prefer the sanitized magic johnson version or do you like the nuance and the art and kind of like the kinetic energy good and bad of the mckay version because i'm definitely more in line with the latter than the former well the most important thing is entertaining 
what's what's the most entertaining and i can't believe the magic uh docuseries or whatever it is will be as entertaining as winning time uh what we had with the last dance in jordan was just like a perfect storm of a guy who was got so big uh with nothing to lose and it's with jordan it's just like the only thing that's ever mattered to him is winning and with the with the last dance documentary it's like we're going to show what a uh, insane competitive uh, winner you are. And Jordan's like, Jordan was, that's, that's what he wants. Whereas like Brady or magic or they're trying to, to craft like how people see them, but Jordan's just, but what winning time was, or not winning time, what the last dance was trying to accomplish to show how the bulls worked with Jordan was it, it aligned perfectly with, what Jordan would want people to see. Um, whereas like magic's not going to want the stuff that gets all that's very salacious in winning time. He's not going to want to cover that. I can't imagine. Um, and all the, all the stuff with cookie and all his various uh, female friends will definitely not see footage. <laughs> like, uh, like the, the shot in the whorehouse that they used in a second episode of magic, uh, going down on a lady which was absolutely wild um so that's that's what made winning time so great was well not the sex scenes but uh for jordan just being honest and he you know he had nothing to lose so i i mean magic doesn't have anything to lose either but not just like he he wasn't trying to sell you anything because he's jordan's already sold everything he's already sold all the shoes yeah, I think with Jordan, it was kind of like an airing of grievances of finally yeah. my side gets to get gets out there. And I do think that that was the best one because there were some things that painted him in an unfavorable light. Shifting gears, winding down the podcast. Yesterday, we had an incident where there was a big Premier League match between my Liverpool Reds, who are at top of the table, by the way. I think they're going to win it all like uh, the smart man from everybody wants some envisioned in his post in his post coital <laughs> bed and Manchester United. And the game was streaming on Hulu. It aired on USA network, which you could watch on cable. If you're an old head like myself, who still has a cable package and loathes the cord cutting experience, especially when it comes to sports, people trying to watch it, could not get it to load. Instead, they were served clips of Law & Order SVU, which was airing before the match on USA Network. What is your thought on watching sports on streaming services? Because there is not a single thing that I like about it. I hate that it's not live. I hate that there's a delay. It makes what we do when you're trying to have a second screen experience with Twitter completely useless. There's nothing worse than getting a spoiler alert about a goal that's coming in 15 seconds or a big three-pointer that went in. And I think that we've kind of reached the tipping point when it comes to all this. And this is nothing new where people are just frustrated and they want to be able to turn on their television to the channel they're used to turning it to, watch the game with the broadcast they are familiar with and not deal with these hassles. And I think anytime there's a hiccup, and to be fair, it doesn't happen all the time, cable goes out there are service issues in the old world too but we're kind of seeing 
The same thing with a slightly different tinge when it comes to Apple TV's broadcast of Major League Baseball. They, they have these Friday night games, and they've put a booth on there that's aiming to be more diverse, more female-friendly, a little bit more fun, but it's not the group or the booth that baseball fans are used to watching. So you get the situation where Mets supporters are tuning in and just hating the entire experience because whether the broadcast is good or not, which I can't say because I haven't watched it because watching a third party team, I don't care about on Apple TV is just an extra step that I'm not going to do with my current sports diet, but they are. My concern is that these streamers, they set up announcers in these new booths to fail. I can't think of a harder situation in sports than to parachute in, to not be an expert in the field, to try to win people over when they're just frustrated and angry that they have to jump through these extra hoops and listen to these new voices that maybe they're not entirely interested in having their mind expanded. And I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of their small-mindedness or their inability to change. I just kind of think that's the way we consume sports, especially baseball, which is so regional and you want to get that familiar feel of the booth that's with you for 162 games. So it's a long preamble, but I really think it's worth exploring because when this stuff was announced and when it ramped up, I feel like, I feel like with NFTs or Top Shot, or Urban Meyer coaching the Jacksonville Jaguars, where it just seems like such a fraught, bad idea that people aren't going to enjoy. And then there's kind of a surprise when they don't enjoy it. Another example, if you want a fourth one, is CNN Plus, where they decided to launch a streaming service that's CNN personalities. When CNN's biggest benefit and the thing it has going for it is it's simply on your television, on the background, and it's kind of passive entertainment, which I feel like so much of sports watching actually is because you put the game on, you're not locked into the whole thing. It's just something you can pop in and out of, which has only gotten more prevalent in an era where our attention spans are like 10 seconds at most. Yeah, sports on the internet is just not there yet. Um, the delay is the main thing um, with Apple's baseball broadcast it's you just can't do it like that you can't just throw these people together um on short notice basically uh amazon is like you have to do it like amazon you have to have have been planning this for years you have to know when you're going to start you have to throw a ton of money at established names so like when we start watching the thursday night amazon games they're going to feel like regular games um but you just take a couple people who no one has no one has any familiarity with and throw them on the seventh biggest streamer and just say, ah, here's a few new graphics. Um, come find the game. It's people are not gonna like it. Um, they really the Apple broadcasts have been put broadcasters were put in a very tough spot. Um, really a no-win spot. Um, and eventually they'll figure it out and they'll be fine. And, you know, people will get used to it eventually. But it's going to take a lot of time because 
that sports online just is not there yet. Um, I am regrettably a cord cutter. Um, I do uh, Hulu Live TV, which is which has that delay um, to change to flip back and forth with channels. You know, you have to drop down the menu. It's just, it's not. But I I hate my cable company, my local cable company, so much that I don't want to give them more money. I already have to give them like seventy bucks a month for internet, but I don't have an option. It's just it's a stupid principles stand that really does nothing but hurt myself. Um, but I just, I hate my cable company. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. That's so I, I suffer through that three, five second delay. And every once in a while, some awesome dunk is spoiled on Twitter. Um, and I, I hope we get there one day because but there's just nothing as good as just like sitting there with a, a big meaty remote in your hand and just being able to hit channel up and channel down and previous channel. Um, you know, if, maybe we gave up on picture and picture technology too soon. Maybe we should, we should just go back like the lost characters, just go back and, and try and do it again. Um, and try and figure, try and figure out what makes cable, why cable, TV is so great and just really embrace it. 100% agree on the picture in picture. It's a thing I was using and loving in like 2011 that I yeah. don't have anymore. And it seems weird that we're going the opposite way. And yeah, I think as a society, and this is a serious, serious issue for us to dive in, we undervalued the value of the previous channel button. Great innovation, yeah. unbelievable. And even that, as my cable packages got better, I have Xfinity, which I think is the best I've ever had. You can do the talking remote, all that stuff. I've been perfectly happy with it. But because it's so good, it actually takes like three seconds to change. Whereas in the old days, you flipped over and there was no like graphics that came up that told me what I was watching that slowed the process down. It was immediate action. All right, let me get you out of here on this. Do you have any new television recs for me? Uh, Severance on Apple. Um, like, Apple's put out some really great stuff. Um, I mean, Ted Lasso is, like, one of the best shows of the last few years. And, but Severance, uh, Ben Stiller uh, cr helped create it. I think it was – I don't think he directed any. But, like, with Adam Scott and John Turturro, and it, that has just been a – that was a great show. I would definitely recommend that. Um, I'm liking Tokyo Vice so far through uh, three and a half episodes. Um, I'm not sure why that's not getting more press. I think it might have to do with a uh, problematic lead actor. Um, so we got Severance. We got Tokyo Vice. Um, I don't know. What, what have you been watching lately? I watched Severance and what I would say is that it moved a little too slow for me for like the first five episodes. But I think with time and reflection, I appreciate the pace because it is a mystery show. You're not supposed to fully understand what's going on. It's hard to do that in a way like you mentioned, you mentioned lost earlier. It felt a little bit like that. Like, who's this guy? What's the deal? Yeah. What's the mystery I'm trying to solve? And that's really the most exciting part of watching a series that has some intrigue like that. So it's worth staying with 
The payoff, the final episode is really good. It makes me think that season two is going to be fantastic. Tokyo Vice, like you said, yeah, it seems with like Michael Mann directing this big splashy thing. I've heard it has fantastic insights about the journalism industry, which is always my one, which is one of my favorite things to watch when it's handled well. I even loved season five of The Wire, even though it was fantastical and, and arguably the worst season because those depictions of the newsroom, if they get it right, it just speaks to me as someone who used to work at a newspaper and it's really exciting. And I think that it actually, in a weird way, helps with media literacy in a way that a lot of things can't. It's really, you have to kind of see the unsexy, unglamorous way uh, in which human beings go about just trying to find a truth about things. I've yet to watch it. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, just in closing, yeah, I we watched the morning show. It was interesting. I think that season one was way better than season two. What I would say about the morning show is it's a fun thing to watch. There's really good characters. And interestingly enough, I thought that it had the most insightful, nuanced, and complicated things to say about the whole idea of cancel culture when it comes to the Me Too movement. Uh, and it handles it with scales and different perspectives in a way that I'm not sure was supposed to resonate with me, the viewer. But Steve Carell comes off as a slightly sympathetic figure, even though he is the perpetrator of these supposed horrible things. And it's kind of a look at where we are right now, the good, the bad, and how much of the actual truth matters to the bottom line. I thought that that was really good. And then finally, I started watching WeWork. We're about six episodes into that. I don't know if you caught that one. Jared Leto plays Adam Newman, the WeWork founder, who I think we all know the story, experienced incredible growth, and it all came crashing down. Anne Hathaway is in it. I'm not an Anne Hathaway fan per se, but her performance in this has really changed my mind. The music is great because it just takes you back to that specific time about 10 years ago with like the Passion Pit, MGMT. It's just a vibe. There's a little bit where Leto does an accent in it, and it kind of is tough to separate him from the guy from the room because they sound and look similar, but it's really good, and it kind of shows like how the cult of personality can run amok and how that a lot of the guardrails that you think are out there just get pushed to the side, uh, and it's kind of uh, it's good. I mean, it, it really shows the benefit of being a visionary, but it also can show how that goes horribly wrong if your vision is flawed. So like you said, there's a ton of good stuff out there. Last note, Netflix for the first time lost subscribers last month. I think it was, that hasn't happened since 2011. And a lot of people have pointed to the price increase and how they're cracking down on password sharing. But you said it earlier and it bears repeating that these other services like Apple, to a certain extent, Hulu, They've just outpaced Netflix when it comes to quality of content they're putting out there. Because when you turn on Netflix right now, and I know this is a simplification, but it kind of seems like every movie is either Mark Wahlberg or Ryan Reynolds in some sort of like heavy handed action piece that is kind of like, you know, you're going to get like two and a half, three stars out of four. And that's the absolute tops. Is that kind of what you were driving at when you said that earlier? Yeah, Netflix is, I mean, they, they've, said that they do everything by algorithms and it's just like they've determined that people want to watch ryan reynolds travel through time so they're gonna make five round reynolds traveling through time movies um 
And I mean, I love Ryan Reynolds, but I just, there's, Apple has a much higher hit rate, it seems. Uh, they do a lot fewer, um, they do fewer shows, but like Severance, uh, Ted Lasso, I haven't seen the morning show, um, but I, I did watch Mythic Quest, which was, uh, which was really funny. Um, and I hadn't really heard anything about that. And that was on Apple. And that's like a Charlie, that's like the Ollie Sunny guys, basically. Um, so I'm right now, if Apple TV put out something I'd never heard of, I would be much more likely to give that a try than one of the million things on Netflix. Even there's just too much on Netflix. It's, it's kind of bloated. The price is definitely kind of spiraling out of control. Eventually, I mean, it's like what, 20 bucks now for like the basic plan. I remember like back in my day, you know, I used to get two DVDs a week for $7, which is actually how I watched the first season of Lost. I was just thinking about that recently, but it's just there. Someday there will be a documentary about Netflix or a docuseries about Netflix. And, you know, we'll just, we just don't know how that's going to end yet. Um, You know, they thought they beat the world when they beat Blockbuster, but you know, maybe this just getting too big and too expensive is will kill them if somebody else comes along. If Apple continues to bulk up, and you know, all you really need to do is land Friends reruns, and you're a contender. Yeah, and if there's a positive to take away from it, I think that we kind of understand that the world is going to have fewer companies. Two of the main ones are going to be Amazon and Apple, and it is heartening to see that they're actually putting out good stuff if that's going to be our only option that's Stephen douglas on everything from the nba to winning time to television i appreciate you joining me let's get back to work okay Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 